This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland. Today, we'll be talking to Cara Diel about her book, Banksy Completed. There's more to Banksy than the painting on the wall. The first in-depth investigation into the mysteries of the world's most famous living artist. Seeing Banksy as the ultimate provocateur, Diel investigates the dramas that unfold after his works are discovered, with all of their social, economic, and political implications. The questions Banksy raises about the uses of public and private property, the role of the global corporatocracy, the never-ending wars, and the gap between artworks as luxury goods and as vehicles of social expression have never been more relevant. Well, Carol, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for inviting me. So as we are living through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Well, one of the things that's done is made me so grateful that I have this project to work on, which seems really meaningful and, uh, and significant for this time. I, I was, of course, set back because our publishing date was set back, but it actually worked out because the MIT Press gained a distributor in Penguin Random House, which has just been amazing. So it's been frustrating and, in a lot of cases, wonderful. And I'm just so grateful to have this opportunity that has put me in touch with so many other people. And yourself, did you have to stop traveling or had to rearrange your schedule? Oh, absolutely. I had to stop traveling and I can't promote the book with the normal kind of book tour that one would do, which is a real problem. But on the other hand, it's opened up opportunities like this. So... Not all a deficit. It's been really hard in this country. We really haven't been able to move about. 
And this time last year, I was totally isolated and really lucky to have close neighbors and live in a small community. It makes a big difference. That's a bit of a silver lining there. Yeah, exactly. So could you tell us a bit more about yourself? Well, I'm uh, an artist. I'm a painter and an art critic and worked as a contributing editor for many years to Art in America. I've rather specialized in the artist Robert Irwin, uh, who's known as a space and light artist from California, and Oliver Eliasson, who may be even more familiar to European to the European listeners. And so I came at it from a very conceptual point. I've also done a lot of teaching, uh, teaching on the graduate level and the undergraduate level. And I actually worked for Time Magazine for 25 years, helping to choose the covers, the art for the covers. So I've had a very broad background. And I did not go to art school. And I feel that is, I don't have any degrees. And I feel that's been an advantage, something that has allowed me to have a perspective from a different viewpoint than the academicians in my field. That is so interesting. So I was wondering if you could tell us maybe a bit more about the environment that you were working in and maybe some people who really influenced you. Well, the people who really influenced me, the the person who really influenced me, who I acknowledge in the book, is Robert Irwin who I heard speak very early in my art career. And he, he spoke in Chicago when I was then the managing editor of the New Art Examiner. And his idea that art is all about the experience. It's not about the object. It's all about what happens around it. It's all about <clears throat> not having wall text, not having pre-publicity influence what you see. It's all about your experience with the art, and that's it, and learning to really observe what's going on and make the decisions for yourself. So he was, he was huge, and uh, that translated into Olafur Eliasson, whose work you may be familiar with. Uh, it's kind of a they're mostly one-offs. They happen um, with, he, he just is into the experience of the art. He's not making a statement about himself. It's really about what the, the people who are experiencing the art bring to it. And you yourself, what do you find in the art so appealing for you? Well, at first I got interested in Banksy because I spend a lot of time in England where he's sort of considered a national treasure. And also I do actually have a background with street art. I showed my paintings at the Sydney Janus Gallery, which was at the time in the 80s, one of the top blue chip galleries in the world. Yet Sydney was open to street art. He was open to graffiti. He came from a place of self-taught art. He appreciated it at a time when other people in the art world really looked down their noses at it. And so I started to look at art through my dealer's eyes, and he was showing the graffiti artists for the first time, the first blue chip gallery to show them. And the work they were doing was on the trains, and 
the subways in New York, and people would come from Europe to see this work. And I was just blown away by it. So that was really the beginning of my interest in street art. And with Banksy, when he came to New York in 2013, my art world colleagues were totally dismissive. And they were always writing about him, sort of taking advantage of his name as clickbait, but at the same time totally dismissing him and not doing their homework. They would write about him without having seen his Academy Award-nominated film, say, Exit Through the Gift Shop. Uh, Jerry Saltz, who writes for New York Magazine, described it as a big-time documentary about himself when anybody who's seen Exit Through the Gift Shop knows that it's a mockumentary at best, and Banksy is a secondary character in it. So... I just became annoyed that my colleagues weren't doing their homework. They weren't being professionals. And I really don't know what was, I look back on this moment, but I had a residency in California and I just decided to put my art critical skills to work on Banksy. I didn't have a contract for anything. I didn't have anything I was supposed to write. This has never happened to me before that I just sat down and, dedicated myself to writing something, but I felt there was so much more, and and it really paid off right in the beginning, because he had done this New York residency, and one of the pieces he did was on a wall where there's a picture of a dog peeing on a fire hydrant, and the thought bubble coming out of the fire hydrant says, you complete me, which is actually, of course, where the title of the book comes from. And uh, our friend Jerry Saltz went out to this piece and he wrote about it saying, what's so great and political about this? I mean, really, and it's in silhouette. And Kara Walker has been doing silhouettes for 20 years, Kara Walker being a major figure in the art world. And it made me realize he had, he had not only not seen Exits Through the Gift Shop, he didn't go to Banksy's website for that day. So if he had, he would have heard in a voice, this is an American voice, saying, you are in midtown Manhattan. If you are looking for one of the great artworks of the 21st century, you're in the wrong place, because what you see is a dog peeing on a fire hydrant. And we all know, oh, and it's in silhouette. And we all know that great art is about light. And then he goes into the juxtaposition of the blah blah to the blah blah in what we call art speak and says, welcome to the art world. And I thought, wow, on the third day, he actually set Jerry up. He actually somehow intuited in advance that on the third day, someone would go out to this piece and try to make an art world statement about it and look really foolish. And as far as I know, to this day, Jerry has no idea that happened. And the next thing that happened was that Mayor Bloomberg gets up on his podium and starts ranting about graffiti. And the New York Post has a, has a front page that says, get Banksy. Well, not only does he make Mayor Bloomberg look ridiculous, he gets all that free publicity. It's genius. So I thought, this is 
you know, I just kept investigating. And I saw other things that everybody missed. Like one of the one of the projects was every day for a week, a fiberglass version of Ronald McDonald appeared in front of a McDonald's shop with a real live boy sitting there shining Ronald McDonald's shoes. Except, oh, and the police would come, of course, and ticket it and take it away, showing that the police are protecting McDonald's, not the public, and that they're really the protectors of the McDonald's brand. But what no one noticed, even though this was widely covered, is that the face of this fiberglass figure which was huge, was not Ronald McDonald's. It was a cast of a bust of Hermes, the Greek god Hermes. And it went completely unnoticed. And of course, if you research Hermes, which no one did, you discover that Hermes is the god of cattle. Hermes is the trickster. And this went completely unnoticed. It was a great statement, but went completely just like it never happened. So I looked into Hermes and also discovered that he is known for, Hermes is, is also related to the cairns that appear marking roads, piles of rocks from middle, middle evil times. And one of the next pieces Banksy does is a sphinx that's sitting on a pile of rocks that looks just like a cairn. And there's a thread. I don't think he cares that anyone knows. I think he's just having fun. And he is the trickster. He tricks people into showing up their worst selves. This is truly fascinating. It's like you're going on a treasure hunt. Yes, it was. It was just like a treasure hunt. And everything I turned up just got better and better. So I kept going. And... Uh, so I wrote a whole piece on the New York residency, and I was in a place that was really supporting me. I gave it as a lecture. A hundred people came, and I thought, well, I'm just going to keep going. So the next thing that happened was the, in the place that I visit most in England, and this is a huge coincidence, uh, lucky on my part, I go to Folkestone, England, to visit friends, and it is so kind of down in the heels and obscure that one, one worker in a Boots chemist heard my accent and said, where are you from? And I said, New York. And she said, and you're visiting Folkestone? But one of the events that they have, which is trying to bring up the arts in Folkestone and make it a de destination, is an art triennial where they bring artists from all over the world. And it's working. Folkestone is, is really getting on the map with art and it's public art, which will ultimately make Folkestone, they keep one every year, sort of a huge outdoor sculpture park. So Banksy did his own unofficial entry into the Folkestone Triennial, and it was while I was there. And so I saw all the reactions to it and I saw what happened after which was that the people who were occupying the building decided to cut it out of the wall and send it to Miami to be sold. Well, I just had been following the news in Folkestone, and what this did 
was, I, I'm not going to make a spoiler out of it. He opened up a legal battle that had been going on for the previous 10 years between two real estate moguls in Folkestone who had been fighting over the use of Harborland. Each of them owned a part of it. And so they'd been wrangling this over 10 years, and it had all died down. And then it turns out that Banksy's piece is on the wall of the people who occupied the building. They're the ones who cut it out. But they were actually renting it from the Creative Foundation run by the other mogul. So the people occupying it, the gardens, and the other mogul got into a whole legal battle. And I'm not going to tell you the end of the story, but you can't say that's an accident. <laughs> it just can't be an accident. He knew perfectly well what he was doing. He knew he was stirring the pot. And um, there's, a, there's a surprise answer to it that I won't give that really proves it. So after that, I just kept going. And then Banksy did this huge project in Bristol, well, near Bristol, on the coast of Bristol, Dismaland. And I had just come back from England, and he did it in his, in his inimitable way, which was there was no announcement. So I had just been in England, but I had no idea that this was going to pop up two weeks later, and I had to go back. And the whole idea of something that huge, which involved a theme park and 58 other artists popping up out of nowhere... It's just like graffiti. It's just like graffiti appears on the wall and it lasts as long as it lasts and then it's done. And, and so Banksy's projects are done in exactly the same way. When the New York residency was over, I thought, oh good, I'm going to write about this. I'll go to his website and check everything out. The website was gone. The project was over. It was gone. And of course, fortunately... Everything was documented by any number of other people, so I really didn't have to worry about it. But I laughed when I was disappointed, but then I laughed because I thought, this is just like street art. It's up, it's down, and the reactions are all in the observers. And so when he actually invited 58 artists from around the world, and 58 artists, not just their art, to come to this abandoned, it was an abandoned water park, had a wall around it, in this really down at the heels town, and it invited the artists to come and install it themselves, to gather together. He got them all hotel rooms. He brought all the art there. He had only 10 works of his own in this extravagant, <laughs> this extravagant display. And, uh, and so I follow one of the artists who gets this cryptic message that he wants her to be in this thing, but she doesn't know what it is. But he's, you know, he's paying to have the work brought there, and he's inviting her to come with her, with her partner and stay in a hotel, and she doesn't know what it is. And uh, at first she thinks it's a prank, but then when money for her project arrives in her bank account, she starts to take it seriously. And she worked really hard on these pieces for three months and couldn't tell anyone what, what it was for. 
And it was a secret completely hidden from the town, even from the town council that had to approve it. He, he pretended that he was making a film. And so he hired people to be guides. You know, this is Dismaland. So it's the anti-Disneyland. It's the, it's the anti-capitalist statement. And so they thought they were going to be extras in the film. And instead, they turn out to be guides with Mickey Mouse ears being as grumpy as possible to all the visitors. So it was a surprise to everyone. And uh, it was really an anti-capitalist statement. And one of the things I observed, because for some reason, out of just sheer luck, I happened to be in the right place at the right time, I went to the Venice Biennale that year, which was dedicated, the theme was dedicated to the failure of capitalism. And while I was there, and of course the Venice Biennale brings artists from all over the world, and while I was there I was thinking, this is so ironic. Here's this huge event dedicated to the failure of capitalism, and the people who are going are billionaire art collectors, and they have to listen to a seven-hour reading of Karl Marx. And nobody thinks this is weird. So um, when Banksy popped up with his theme park dedicated to the failure of capitalism, maybe six weeks later, I thought, oh, he's doing his own Venice Biennale, his way. So you gave and us a, a lot of suspense there. <laughs> there's a lot of suspense. And also the timing was amazing. Um, it was at the time that refugees were fleeing and, go, and going sort of through the English Channel to Calais. And it was vi extreme and disruptive. And uh, he made that part of the work. And at the very end, so this, this theme park popped up. It was there for five weeks. And then when they said it was going to close, it closed. No, that's it. No, no sign of it after. And he had it all torn down and had the building materials sent to Calais and with a team to build shelters for the refugees. And he called it dismal aid. So that's, that, was, that was how it ended. So let me start more of a technical part uh, with asking you, who actually is Banksy? Do we know? And is it actually necessary for us to know? Oh, I think it's absolutely necessary for us not to know. I think it's a very, very significant part of the art that we not know. Because everything today is about personality and celebrity. And anytime anyone does something, they get stuck with this uh, sort of personal attitude. And uh, you can't stick anything on someone who's anonymous. It's just about the work. It's not about the personality. It's just about the message, really. So I think it's very important that it be personality-free and message. the message becomes on point. And that's what makes it, the, the whole thing, the whole thing that it's so enigmatic makes it so mysterious and yet such a consistent message all along. So I think it's very important, and uh, and I I think it's he keeps his anonymity through sort of amazing loyalty by a lot of people because there are people obviously who know who he is, 
And I think anyone who says they know who he is probably doesn't. And people who say they don't know who he is probably do. But I had an experience that showed me how it works, how he keeps his anonymity. Um, I was in a film called Banksy Does New York. And because of that, a television company called me up and they said, we're going to do a whole series on Banksy and we'd like you to narrate it. And it's going to be in six segments. And in the final segment, we're going to unmask him. We're going to say who Banksy is. And I got really angry and I said, nobody cares who Banksy is and nobody will care about your program and you're you know, ruining the, trying to ruin the fun for everybody. And so I took down their numbers. I hung up. I immediately contacted Banksy's management company, which is called Pest Control, by the way, and uh, told them that this was happening. Then I called everyone I knew involved with street art. I called Brooklyn Street Art. I called Carlo McCormick, who's the academic at New York University, who's been very involved with street art. All the people I knew that they would call and warned them in advance that this was happening and what their intention was. And so I realized I'm, I'm part of the anonymity. I'm part of keeping it secret. This is how it happens. And it was fascinating to me because I'm sure that Brooklyn Street Art then called everyone they knew and Carlo McCormick called everyone he knew and the thing couldn't get off the ground. Oh, this is truly fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you already mentioned uh, that Banksy uses the street art and stencils. So can you describe a little bit more in depth what kind of ways he tries to achieve whatever he wants to achieve? Well, first of all, the use of stencils is really important because it allows him to do all the work in advance and then do, you know, then finish it off on the street in a very, very short period of time. But still... How that happens is also a mystery because nobody else seems to have been able to carry it off. And he has not been caught in the 20 years he's been doing it. And the other part is about his message, which is really, really anti-war, anti-capitalist. And while a lot of critics think that it's a little sentimental, maybe, because of his use of children, Really, it's about let's build a world where children can be safe. 
let's build a world where a little girl can take a balloon over the dividing wall between Palestine and Israel. Let's build a world where children don't have to be subject to war, who don't have to be subject to racism and, and uh, you know, where their world isn't ruled by brands and advertising. And so that's really it. And he, he is political, but it's never personal. You will not see and a cartoon of Trump. You will not see a cartoon of Netanyahu. You will not see the people involved. All you see are, in most cases, people like children, ordinary people, just trying to get through the day and have a good experience with their lives. So why do you think they started doing what they are doing? You mean what Banksy is doing? Mm -hmm. Well, Banksy came up, and we do know this about him, but as I say in the book, he has a history, but we don't know really if it's even the same Banksy or if it's a group or whatever. But in the beginning, he was part of this very rich cultural um, melting pot that was Bristol in in the 80s and 90s you know, just when he was leaving secondary school. And so the band Massive Intact was very important. The music was all East Indian, electronic music, hip hop. It was a, it was a melting pot. And there was a lot of street art going on. And one of his original pieces is still up in Bristol. But there was, it was just a big melting pot. And, the, and Bristol is still a headquarters for street art. And so he basically just fell into that mix and became part of it. And it was very political. And I think that was his biggest influence. So what is the reception of uh, his art? And has it changed over time? Well, the reception for the people and the young people has been, of course, incredible. Uh, He has well over 10 million followers on Instagram. I don't know anyone else who has more. Uh, they follow everything. The, the event in New York where he did a different piece every day had crowds of people. It was like a, a, like a treasure hunt, following it, taking pictures. That's what the film Banksy Does New York is about, and I love the way they did it because it was all secondary commentary on Banksy. It was all real people's videos of what he did. And so it's it's interesting because the art world hasn't caught on. And they really, I think part of it is they really look down on what the public likes. They want to maintain their ivory tower attitudes. They really don't like things that bring crowds and have too much enthusiastic response to it. And they want to be kind of special in their little academic ways. But also, I think maybe it's a class thing. Street art is, is you know, it's universal. It's not the educated, well, it is the educated, but it's not the academic look at things. And also, I think it's that, well, he doesn't play into their values. So he's actually not making money. 
he hasn't had anything for sale, or, or he may be making money, but we don't know how. He hasn't had anything for sale since 2008, unless he's doing it for charity. But his work comes up at auction, and it sells for millions of dollars. And what people don't realize, and even people in the art world blame him for, this huge amount of money is made by other people. The pieces that come up at auction are things that people bought previously and are now reselling. So they're making the money. He doesn't see any of it. And yet to be associated with millions of dollars for a lot of people think this isn't the ethos of street art. This is something else. And I thought that too for a long time, I have to say. I bought into it. But they all they talk about is the auction prices. And that's why... A couple of years ago, he had that famous piece that shredded at auction where when the gavel came down, there was a mechanism inside the frame and it shredded the piece. And he, what he really wanted to do was sort of shred the whole, you know, the whole economic emphasis that Sotheby's represents. Unfortunately, the piece malfunctioned and only shredded half of it. So it was then worth you know, two or three times more than it was before. But it's it's an interesting thing, and I think that that's what I'm trying to do with my book, is let everyone, let everyone know what's really behind this work, and it's much more than they thought. So what would be most interesting works uh, for you personally? Perhaps some, some works that really had a goal to achieve and did achieve it? Well, for an isolated picture, it's the one of the little girl. I think this represents Banksy all the way around. There's one of the little girl patting down, frisking an Israeli soldier. And basically, we want to live in that world. That's what he's talking about. So he's not blaming the Israelis. He's just wanting a world where a little girl can do such a thing. And I love that. And yet, on the same topic, there's a huge piece that has hardly gotten any press, maybe because it's so sensitive. But he built a whole hotel in Bethlehem, in the West Bank, adjunct to the wall. It's like, it's like you know, one car lane from the wall. It's in the shadow of the wall. And it has eight guest rooms. It has a museum that's dedicated to the history of the wall. It has a gallery that's dedicated to Palestinian artists curated by a Palestinian curator. And there's a shop that sells books only about the history of the wall. And so what has happened, the economy of Bethlehem plummeted after the wall was built because it's only six miles from Jerusalem, but the tourists began to just come for the day and leave. And it was such a huge economic decline. And so with this hotel, he has brought, we don't know what's happening in COVID, but he brought attention to what's going on there, and he brought visitors who would stay overnight. And the tours that would go to the holy sites in Bethlehem 
ended up also going to the hotel and going through the museum and having a far broader idea of what's going on there than they would have otherwise. And he gave, oh, and I have to say, he gave the hotel to the Palestinians. So it's not like he's, somebody said he's making a profit. And I thought, oh, sure, he's making a profit over the poorest people. You know, he's put a, put a place in one of the poorest places in the world and he's making a profit. No, he gave it to them. If he wanted to make a profit, he could be like Damien Hirst and decorate a room in Las Vegas and charge $200,000 a night. He's not making anything. So that's an important part of it. So would you describe Banksy as activist? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's that's what he is. He's there to shake things up. He's there to reveal the the you know the I hate to say it but they're there evil forces that are going on in the world and he's having a lot of fun at the same time. So do you think it's not too good to be true to have uh, <laughs> such an activist? <laughs> well, I think it's great, or I wouldn't have spent really years on this, because I started out not having any idea what you know I was doing beyond writing something about the, the New York experience, and then I just ended up going. I just couldn't think of anything that was more important right now than writing about Banksy, and he's become more and more relevant. So what do you think is the appeal of Banksy to general population? Well, I think I think it's a sense of humor that brings them in. He's always making some sort of joke. I mean, even the little girl frisking down the soldier, that's crazy. It's silly. And so he's not too serious. He's not bludgeoning people over the head with his ideology. He has this wonderful way of bringing attention to, to things that people might not be paying attention to, but doing it in a way that brings humor to it. So it's very appealing. And people now really want something of substance. They don't want just frilly stuff. They want something that means something, and he, he brings that to them. And then on the flip side, what are the arguments of his critics? Well, the arguments of his critics are pretty funny because most of them haven't experienced his work. I spend a lot of time talking about how people have criticized things they haven't seen, like all the pieces that were written about Dismaland, negative, by people who never went there. One critic spends a lot of time talking about how bad his painting is in Venice, which was at the same time as the last Venice Biennale. And I thought, you know, if this were a Monet, he wouldn't spend 3,000 words on something he saw in a three-inch image on his computer. It's just interesting how it is. It, it riles the critics. They get so upset. But they also don't, don't do their homework. Most of them have never heard of Dismaland. Most of them have never heard of the Waldorf Hotel in the West Bank. They just don't bother. They think, I, I was going to say that my book is, is, should be subtitled, um, The Experts Think Banksy is so inconsequential that they use him as quick clickbait but don't have to do their homework. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and I still run up against it. I still run up against it. I, I'm wondering 
who is the reviewer in the art world that's going to break the ice with this book? Who's going to dare? And I'm still waiting to see. So now thinking about the bigger picture, so how did you go about um, researching the social and political dimensions of Banksy's art? Well, I'm very fortunate to have the internet. And it's just, and I love research. I really do love research. So it was, it was enormous fun just following the threads. Just keep following the threads and finding out what's at the bottom of it. And what would be the implications of raising the issues that Banksy does in his art uh, for our wider society? Well, it's awareness. It's really awareness of what our system is emphasizing. It's awareness, for instance, okay, I had been to the Middle East in, I don't know, the 80s, but I wasn't aware of what was really going on there. And Banksy made me pay attention. I had to learn. And that's what he's doing. He's sort of shining a light on shining a light on various various situations that don't get that perspective. For instance, one of his more recent things was to have a store online and the proceeds were to go to the female captain of the refugee ship. She was she was saving refugees and her ship was confiscated and his purpose in having this store was to build her another ship, get her another ship, so she could keep doing what she was doing. And how many people knew that before? You know, he can just shine a spotlight on situations that people aren't aware of and make them aware of things that they weren't thinking about because all we, all we hear is the mainstream news and this woman with her confiscated ship is not at the top of the mainstream news. But after Banksy does that, everyone knows about it. The world of Banksy is so well beyond any <laughs> images or pictures, isn't it? It's, yeah, uh... it really is. And that's why I call it Banksy Completed, because it's not about the image on the wall. It's about all the things that unfold after that image goes up. And I relate it to happenings, um, which was a part of pop art, where people would make situations just to see what happened. And John Cage called it like um, to catch a fish, the nature of which you do not know. So Banksy puts these things out there. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Sometimes, as in Folkestone, he's stirring the pot and probably giggling about what he's stirring up. But he puts it out there and what happens, happens. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Banksy Completed, surprised you the most? Oh, my goodness, there were so many. Mm. I, think, I think the beginning was finding, finding the depth in his work surprised me the most. When I found the allusions to Greek mythology, when I found the allusions to the philosophy of Hannah Arendt and realized that his whole... The basis of his work is really about what Hannah Arendt called, you know, the banality of evil. People just doing their jobs, enabling some of the worst crimes in the world. And that was a huge discovery to me. And, of course, it got me reading Hannah Arendt, 
and uh, and and that was there in an image that he there was a he bought a very cliche pastoral painting secondhand from a from a secondhand store that benefits people with AIDS. And he simply added the figure of a Nazi soldier, officer, contemplating the landscape and gave it back to this not-for-profit, which, of course, put it in their window and sold and made $450,000 for the nonprofit. And he called it the banality of the banality of evil, which is the subtitle the Banality of Evil is the subtitle of Hannah Arendt's book about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who facilitated the, tra- you know, who facilitated the trains that took the Jews to the death camps. And so he called it the name of her book. And of course, the painting is banal in itself. So then it's the banality of the banality of evil. Do you think one critic picked up on that? Only one even mentioned it, and he said it only proves that Banksy doesn't care what he's saying. It's amazing to me. And then I began to see that this is really his purpose, is to show up the banality of evil. The New York City policeman protecting the McDonald's brand. Mayor Bloomberg saying, get Banksy. You know, get the graffiti out of there. Why? So we can have more advertisements? Mm. So... This is what that was that was the biggest surprise to find the depth that he's he's working with. He's sort of turning the mirror back at the audience. Exactly. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yep. So if you met Banksy in person, I I don't know if you have or have not, what would you <laughs> say to him? Well, first of all, I don't want to. And it was very important to me with this book that I not be associated because I'm an art critic. I'm not a journalist. I'm an art critic. I have all these ideas. I want credit for them. I don't want somebody thinking I sat down with him and he told me all this. I figured it out for myself. So uh, I don't know. I don't, really, I don't really want my bubble burst. I don't think I want to meet Banksy. I might, he might just turn out to be totally ordinary guy. And yeah, it's not important to me. It's not something I aspire to, to meet Banksy. Um, And I think Banksy is more than Banksy because you can't do these huge projects without teams of people helping you and working with you in secret. So it's, it's much more than Banksy. Maybe just have a cup of tea and uh, some muffins or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Well, currently I'm, I'm ending up doing a lot of this kind of publicity, which I actually love. Um, I love speaking in public. I love meeting people. I've met incredible people through through this. And the book has only been out a little over a month. But I really want to give attention to my own work, my own painting, and get back to that full time. And I'm um, putting together a compilation of my writing over the years for publication. So that's fun to go back and see 
how all of my writing has led me to this point. So that's, that's what I'm doing. And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Oh, well, um, they, my book is, all they have to do is Google my book and Penguin for Pam, Penguin Random House, and the information will come up. I have a website, caroldeal.com, and that has actually, I've made it a kind of archive of my writing over the years, so people can learn a lot about Robert Irwin and Olafur Eliasson and the people I've mentioned. So that's, that's really it. They should buy the book and find out more. Well, Carol, thank you so much for joining me today and for this intriguing discussion. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was really fun.